Open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 16. Exodus chapter 16. We started several weeks ago, which I felt was appropriate at the beginning of this year, a, a series which I'm trusting will be a, a shorter series than normal, most of our series. And it's entitled First Things First. In other words, getting things in the right priority. And what we talked about is God is a God of order. God is very orderly. The universe that He's created is orderly. Your body that is created was orderly. It may not always function orderly, but that's not God's fault. That's the, because of sin in the world. But th that's why your doctor knows where to put the stethoscope, because the, your heart's hopefully in the same place my heart's in. And so there's, there's, a, there's an order to our body. There's an order to the universe. And what we began to look at, there's an order in God. God does things in a certain order, and God has established certain orders or priorities for our lives. And if we'll get our lives in order with His priorities, then it works better because that's the way He's designed us. His blessings can flow better, and there's a protection that's there when we walk in line with God's priority and God's order. Psalm 91, which is so beloved because it talks about protection. And people, we love the, to quote it. We love to stand on the promises that, that, that you know, no, they may fall, a thousand may fall to my left and ten thousand to my right, but it's not got all those provisions in there. But it starts with he who dwells in the secret place of the Most High. That provision, that protection is only to those that are up underneath his, his direction, his line of authority, his order. So that's what we've been looking at because in the beginning of this year, there's some things God wants to do, I believe with all my heart, in the church this year. This church as well as his, but they, things have to get in order for God's power and his glory to flow in the church. In fact, revival always starts with the Spirit of God cleaning house. I mean inside, getting things in order, and when he's doing that, that means he's preparing for something. So I believe we're in a time of preparation. And so that's what we're looking at. So we've seen God is a God of order. And then uh, last week we began to look at, um, uh, at what that beginning, the foundation of that order is, and it's obvious it has to be God. We saw in Exodus when God revealed, began to reveal himself to his people. He came down on a mountain, Mount Sinai, and he had Moses assemble the people around him. And then he spoke to them to reveal to them who he was and what he required of them so that they would fear him, worship him, and honor him so that he could bless them and take care of them. And he started out by saying in Exodus chapter 20, which is the beginning of what we call the Ten Commandments, he started out by saying, I am the Lord your God. We talked about what that meant that He is, he, who it means that He is the Lord. That means He's the self-existent one. He is the foundation for all existence. Everything has come from Him. He owes His existence to no one or no thing, and everything owes its existence to Him. So He says, I am the Lord, your God. And he was referring to God in the generic sense because they had come out of Egypt, which had thousands of gods. Everything they needed, they came up with a God to meet that need. Whether it was for the harvest or whether it was for children or whether it was for prosperity or protection, they had gods for every, to meet every need. And then they made little symbols called idols to represent those gods. And they worshiped those gods because they put their trust in those gods to take care of them and to meet their needs. So God gets them out of all that idolatry, brings them out into a wilderness. Because remember, God's plan was to take them out of that place of bondage in Egypt and bring them over into a land He wanted them to have, a land of promise, a blessing, a land flowing with milk and honey and blessings that God had for them. But to get there, they had to go through this wilderness. 
And in this wilderness was a very barren place. There was hostile. There was, uh, there was wild animals there. It was not a pleasant place, but they had to go through that to get to the place that God had promised to them. So God comes down on this mountain, and the basic thing God wants to announce to them is, I am now the Lord. I am now your God. I am the one you look to for everything. You don't look to a little idol to provide you uh, the harvest. You don't look to an idol to provide you for children. You don't look to an idol to provide you for all the things you were trained to look for in Egypt. I am the Lord who is your God, your source, your protection, your provision. You shall have no other gods before me. And then to make it clear, he then says, you shall make no graven image. You shall make for yourself no image that you have formed. Because anytime man forms something, man's the source of the, the design of that. He forms it in an image he chooses to make. Which is why God told Moses later on, not much further on from where we're looking, God told Moses, I want you to build altars to me, but those altars have to either be made of, of stone, but no man can cut it. Because if a man has cut a stone, he's now changed his form by his own efforts. So you have to worship me based on something I've made and no one's touched. That's important for what we're going to talk about today. So the foundation of everything is God. The foundation in our life has to be God. What we're going to begin to look at now is how that begins to get lived out. Because there are other priorities. We're going to start and emphasize, of course, the foundation of everything is God must be first. He must be the foundation of everything in our lives, the, the one we look to and trust in and are relying upon for everything. So we looked last week where we were ending, we talked about the fact that, that, um, that in Deuteronomy, in verse chapter 8, we looked at how, how God said, I was testing you. Because I, I hungered you. I made you hunger in the wilderness. He didn't starve them. He limited their food. And he said, I was trying to teach you and to train you and prepare you that man does not live by bread alone, but man is to live by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. What we're going to look at this morning is we're going to look at that testing. Because we're going to see a very important lesson in this testing and where they failed. And then we're going to look to see that the Bible tells us in, first, in the New Testament that this is in the Bible as an example for us. So this is not just some historic story that we're looking at. This is not just some old civilization that we're going to look at what a mess they made. But this is in here because we'll fall into the same trap they fall into if we don't recognize the lesson that they were, willing, that they were not willing to learn and we must be willing to learn it. So let's go on this journey. Let's start now by going... Where did I tell you to turn? Exodus? Well, I meant 14. <clears throat> we're going to go to 16, but go back two chapters to 14, because we're going to end with this... I'm going to pick parts of this story. Where, what's happened at this point is Israel has cried out to God. They're in bondage in Egypt. Egypt represents the world system. They worshipped gods that they made, as we just talked about. And they actually worshipped demonic gods. There was a demonic power behind the gods that they worshipped. And they were the most powerful, educated, wealthiest nation on the earth at the time that we know of. And, and, they, uh, and, and Israel that came in there was about 70 people. That was the children of Israel himself. And they'd been there over 400 years and they're now in bondage. They're more, they're more of them and mightier 
than the Egyptians. In fact, if you look at Exodus chapter 1, the new Pharaoh is afraid of them, so he puts them in bondage. Oh, there's a message right there. The reason Satan has to try to keep you in bondage is he's afraid of you. The reason Satan has to try to keep you in bondage to fear, religion, whatever, sin, ultimately, what all it is comes down to, the reason he has to, the weapon he has is to keep you in bondage is because he's afraid of you. Not you yourself. He's afraid of who's in you and who you're part of. And he's afraid you're going to find out. So he has to keep you on a leash to keep you in fear, to keep you in bondage. And these are the children of God who have a covenant with God that God gave to Abraham, that I'm going to form a nation and I'm going to bless you and through you the nations of the world are going to be blessed and they're living in bondage and fear and they're serving a Pharaoh who is ungodly, who is driven by and worships literally demonic spirits and Satan himself. And they're in bondage to him. Well, they finally had it. Sometimes we have to get to the place where we've had it. And they cry out to God because sometimes the bondage you're in is more comfortable than the change you think you're going to have to go through. Which is why many people, and this we talked about on Wednesday night, why many people don't get free because they don't want to deal with the pain and the change that they're going to have to go through. So they'll live with the status quo even though it's hard and it's bondage and it's, it's destructive in their lives. They'd, be, they'd rather live with the devil they know. <laughs> you understand? And that's part of his scheme to keep you in it. All right, so that's where they are. They've cried out. They've had it. They've cried out to God. God has to deliver Moses, who he's prepared 80 years in preparation, and sends him back supernaturally to them, and supernaturally delivers them by ten plagues that, that afflict Pharaoh and the nation of Egypt. And most of them, the, the children of Israel did not have to endure. And now they've come across, they've just seen the Red Sea part, they've just seen their enemy destroyed in front of them, and now they turn to this journey that they're on in the wilderness. So we're going to pick, this is the, the verses we're going to look at are the last two verses of Exodus 14. So the Lord saved Israel that day out of the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw, I want you to look at, Israel saw, the Egyptians dead on the seashore. This army that is the mightiest army in the world that has kept them in fear all these years, they've just watched in one day their God destroy in front of their eyes this mighty army that was trying to destroy them. They saw their, they saw their enemy destroyed and dead on the sea. They saw it. That's important. This isn't something that their ancestors saw and was passed down from... They just saw that with their own eyes. Their enemy dead on the seashore. Their enemy defeated. Verse 31. Thus Israel saw the great work which the Lord had done in Egypt. So the people feared. That means they reverenced they weren't afraid of God, they reverenced Him, the Lord, and they believed the Lord and His servant Moses. Now chapter 15, which we're not going to go through, the first 21 verses is a song that Moses sings about this victory. The horse and riders fell into the sea. It's a, 
It was a song we used to sing back in the 80s. But it's a song of Moses, of singing triumph and, 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 and victory. And then, we're not going to look there, but starting in verse 20, what happens is they get thirsty, their canteens dry out, and now they're looking for water. They find a stream, and they taste it, and the water's bitter, which means it's not safe to drink. So they come to Moses, and they complain, and Moses takes his rod, God tells him, and touch the water, and it turns sweet. And at that point, God begins to reveal His covenant and says, If you will serve the Lord your God, I will bless, your water, I will bless you, and I, for I am the Lord your healer. He healed the water, but He reveals Himself as Jehovah Rapha. The very first thing He reveals Himself to His people of covenant name is, I am the Lord your healer. I will heal your bodies. I am the source of your healing. It's not God's will that we be sick. So at the very beginning, God announces, I am the one that is here to heal you. Sickness and disease comes as a result of sin, not necessarily yours, but sin that's in the world, although yours will do it. And and Satan is the source of it. And so God reveals, I am the one that is your healer. I've healed this water, but I'll heal your bodies. So they've just seen this in chapter 15. Now chapter 16. Verse 1. And they journeyed from Elam, and all the congregation of the children of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which was between Elam and Sinai on the fifteenth day of the second month after they departed out of Egypt. So it's two and a half months on their journey. I want you to get that. They're only out there two and a half months. Verse 2, And the whole congregation of Israel complained complained against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness two and a half months they've just seen God supernaturally deliver them they've just seen their enemy that they had no power to defeat they watched God defeat their enemy in front of them and they've seen their bodies strewn on the seashore they've just seen God turn bitter water into sweet so that they could drink it. And now what do they do? Two and a half months on this journey, they start complaining against Moses and against Aaron. And let's look at why. Verse 3, the children of Israel said to them, Oh, that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt. First of all, the Lord wasn't trying to kill them in Egypt. The devil was. So you start complaining and your vision gets skewed. We're going to see that in a little while. You start complaining, which is really feeling sorry for yourself, which is a form of worship. It's a form of idol worship. Self-pity is really idol worship. Maybe not a little statue on your, on your dashboard. It's the idol is you. You're feeling sorry for yourself because you're the center of your universe and you're not getting what you think you're entitled to, and by the way, you don't want what you're entitled to. (laughs) Oh, that we had died by the Lord in the hand of Egypt when we sat at the pots of meat and we ate the bread to the full. For you brought us into this wilderness to kill us, this whole assembly, with hunger. What they're looking back on now is they're remembering the food they had. Literally the food they had, that's the pots of meat. 
They're remembering the food they had, and we're going to see other examples of this, that they had while they were in Egypt. They're forgetting everything else. They're forgetting they had no control over their lives. When they got up, when they went to bed, they're forgetting that they were, they were serving hard taskmasters who beat them, who set quotas for the... Because they built the backs, the, 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 the uh, pyramids of Egypt and the great cities of Pharaoh were built on the backs of the, Egypt, of the, of the Israelite slaves. And they were hard taskmasters with hard demands on them. And they beat them and they kept them in bondage. Not just emotional bondage, but physical bondage. They were not, they were not able to govern their own lives. Oh yeah, they fed them. But you see, what happens is when you begin to sell your birthrights for a pot of porridge like Esau did... That's what the devil wants. He wants, to, he wants to put demands on your physical needs so you turn to him to meet those physical needs and in the process you sell your soul. You sell the control of your soul. Not the ownership, but the control of it. When we sat, they're remembering for two and a half months. They're not remembering the miracles that God did. They're not remembering the deliverance that God did. They're not remembering you just turned the water into, into bitter water into sweet. They're, you're going to see why. We're going to see why they remembered these things and didn't remember the things God did for them. And they're complaining against God. Why did you bring us out here to kill us, this whole assembly, with hunger? Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I will rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a certain quota every day that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. So remember last, last week, he was testing them to see what was in their heart, to see basically whether they would obey him or not. And God, this is the foundation of our right priority is God's word is first. God is first because when we obey him, then he is able to bless us and take care of us. <clears throat> I want to test them whether they will walk in my law or not, whether I am their God or not. <clears throat> okay, verse 5. And it shall be on the sixth day that they shall prepare what they bring in, and it shall be twice as much that they gather daily. Then Moses and Aaron said to all the children of, evil, of, e- <laughs> of Israel, <clears throat> At evening you shall know that the Lord has brought you out of the land of Egypt, and in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord, for he hears your complaints against the Lord. <clears throat> By the way, he still does. But what we, but what we are, that, what are we that you complain against us? And Moses said, This shall be seen when the Lord gives you meat to eat in the evening and morning bread for the full. For the Lord hears your complaints which you make against him. And what are we? Your complaints are not against us, but against the Lord. You understand when you complain against your leaders? You complain against the Lord. Let's go to verse 14. This is what happened when they got up. And when the layer of dew lifted, there on the surface of the wilderness was a small round substance as fine as frost on the ground. And when the people of Israel saw that, they said to one another, What is this? For we don't know what it is. And Moses said to them, This is the bread which the Lord your God has given you to eat. This is the bread that the Lord your God has given. This is what God has chosen to give you, to eat. God has chosen what He wants you 
to eat. Remember we looked several weeks ago that the God is a God of order, that when they were to march in battle array and when they were to march from one place to another, God established an order for them to march in. Which tribe was to go first, which family was to go next. He had an order when they camped where they were supposed to camp. He had an order for them, he had a will for them, and his plan was if they followed his order, then they succeeded in battle. When they didn't follow his plan, they didn't succeed in battle. And so God not only has an order for them, God has a food for them to eat. This is going to relate to us before we're done. God has a food for them to eat. This is the bread the Lord has given you to eat. By the way, it was free. It was free. It didn't cost them anything. They, all they had to do was go get it. They had to work. They had to go get it. They had to prepare it. But it, God provided it for them. All right. And, and the, the food from the Egyptians was free also, but at a huge price. At a huge price. Okay. Verse 16. This is the thing which the Lord has commanded. Let every man gather according to each one's need one omer, that was a measure, for each person according to the number of persons, and let every man take for those who were in his tent. Then the children of Israel did so, and they gathered, some more and some less, based on the amount of people they had in their tent. So when they measured it by omers, he who gathered much had nothing left over, and he who had little had no lack. See, God did not want them storing up for the next day. Because that meant they had to trust Him every day for what they needed. Because if they stored up two days worth, that's saying, I believe what I got today, but I'm not sure you're going to provide for me tomorrow, so I've got to hang on to what I got now, the extra, so that because I don't know if you're going to come through for me tomorrow. Let's see what happened to it. Verse 19, And Moses said, Let no one leave any of it until morning. Notwithstanding, they did not heed him or listen to Moses, but some of them left part of it until the morning, and it bred worms, and it stinketh. <laughs> it stank. And Moses was angry at them. So they gathered every morning and every man according to his need. When the sun became hot, it melted. So they had a limited opportunity to get it. So they had to get up early. So it was on the sixth day that they gathered twice as much bread, two omers for each, and all the rulers of the congregation came and told Moses, and they said to him, This is what the Lord has said, Tomorrow is a Sabbath rest. So on the Sabbath day, the seventh day, they were not to do any work. And part of that work was they were not to go gather bread. So God told them, On the sixth day, you get two days' worth, because you can't go out tomorrow, because I said so. And that second, that second day's worth that you gather on the sixth day won't rot because I told you to gather it. Okay. Um, verse 24. So they laid it up until morning as Moses commanded them, and it did not stink. This is, the sixth, this is on the sixth day. Nor were there worms found in it. And Moses said, Eat that today, for today is a Sabbath, or rest, to the Lord. Today you will not find it in the field. Six days you shall gather it in, but on the seventh day, the Sabbath day, there will be none. 
Now it happened that some of the people went out on the Sabbath day to gather, but they didn't find any. They just wouldn't listen. And the Lord said to Moses, How long do you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? See, they didn't keep His commandment and laws because they didn't trust God would do what He said. Verse 29, See, for the Lord has given you the Sabbath, therefore He gives you on the Sabbath six days bread for two days. Let everyone remain in his place. Let no one go out of his place on the seventh day. So the people rested on the seventh day. Verse 31, And the house of Israel called its name manna. It was like white coriander seed, and the taste of it was like wafers made of honey. The word manna means, what is it? So we looked last week and saw that God was training them. Last week we looked in Deuteronomy where 39 years later, God's looking back with them to tell them why He did what you just read, why He did this. He was testing them and training them so that when God when they came into this land of promise and a blessing, that the prosperity that they were going to have would not turn their hearts away from God. Because they would have been trained in the idea that God is my source, whether I have little or I have much, God is my source. And we're seeing they didn't do very well in the test. And they're only two and a half months out. Well, they don't do any better as the story goes along. All right, so let's go over now. Let's go over to Numbers chapter 11. And we're going to see why. We're going to see what's going on here. Because what we're talking about this morning, what's so important, we're talking about priorities in our life, and we're talking about the first priority as to God has to be first. But we're, not, we're talking about first in our heart. This whole issue of priorities is an issue of the heart. What God cares about more than anything else is our heart, where our heart is, who has our heart, because God loves us, and because He loves us, He has commanded us to love Him back. That's what we saw, Jesus summed every, all the Ten Commandments up, all the commandments up in this, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, and with all your soul, and then you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So this is what we're looking at, and this is what God is training them in, that when I get you to the place I want to get you, and I bless you, and I prosper you, and you are living in a land flowing with milk and honey, that that blessing and prosperity will not turn your heart away from me. And to do that, He had to train them to keep their heart on Him, and we'll see they failed the test. And then we're going to see this is in here as a warning for us. All right, Numbers chapter 11. Start at verse 4. Now when the mixed multitude who were among them, he's talking about the the food now, when the mixed multitude who were among them yielded to intense craving so that the children of Israel also wept again and said, who will give us meat? This is the same issue. They're longing for the food that they had back in Egypt. But notice that term, the mixed multitude. The mixed multitude. I believe that refers back to Exodus 12, verse 38. Exodus 12 is the story of when finally Pharaoh says, Get out of here. I can't stand this anymore. The last plague was the firstborn in Egypt died, including Pharaoh's firstborn. And he said, That's it. You go serve your God, do whatever you want to do. You leave. 
Well, Exodus 12 is the story of that, but verse 38 said, Some of the Egyptians went with them. So when some of the Egyptians went with them, they took with them their old beliefs and their old appetites. Because an appetite the Bible talks about is not just the appetite of your tongue, it's the appetite of your mind. It's what your mind longs for. It's what your flesh longs for. Your body has an appetite just as your tongue has an appetite. Your mind has an appetite, which is what it longs for, what it desires, what it feeds on and what satisfies it. And this is where we're headed. So among them was a mixed multitude, someone that were not... And this becomes very important in God's eyes and therefore very important in our... They were to be a segregated people in the sense of they were not to mix other nations in with them. When they come to the promised land, God again instructs them, you are to utterly destroy every nation in that land. You are not to make a covenant or league with anyone. Why? Because the moment you make a covenant with them, you begin to incorporate them in, and they bring in their foreign gods, they bring in their foreign ideas, they bring in their foreign appetites. If you've ever read through Leviticus and Numbers, you see all these rules and regulations about what they can do, what they can't do, what they can eat, and what they can't eat. And there may have been dietary reasons for that, but the fundamental reason is God was training them that they belonged to Him and Him alone. And that God had the right to tell them what they could eat and what they couldn't eat. That they were wholly His. The word holy means completely belonging to. So when God says, I'm making you a holy people, that means we completely belong to Him spirit, soul, and body. When God says, I'm a holy God, that means I am, I am integral, I am one. There is no other thing part of me. There's no outside source. I am it. So God wanted this people to know that they were holy is, that they were a people on the earth that completely represented Him accurately and that they belonged to Him. But the other side is that He belonged to them. Remember, He says, I am the Lord, your God. I am, a God, I am the true God and I belong to you. That's an amazing thing. God did not belong to any other people, which means they had a right to call upon Him and cry out to Him and expect Him to provide for Him for them. But the other side of that is they had to be a people that completely relied upon Him. And we talk about the covenant we have with God through Jesus Christ. And isn't it wonderful we have a covenant with God that God will provide my needs and take care of me, but there's another side of the covenant. If in this covenant God and I are one, that means God belongs to me. He's responsible for me. But the other side of that is I belong to Him. That's why Jesus said, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. If you love me, then you will belong to me just as I belong to you. It's a two-way street. Just as 48 years ago when I, Anita and I got married, we entered into a covenant, but that's a two-way street. I belong to her as much as she belongs to me. And what I have belongs to her as much as what she has belongs to me. And we won't go into that this morning. I don't know about us, but in terms of separate bank accounts and things like that. So that's another subject for another day. All right. Where were we before we got interrupted there? All right. <laughs> oh, yeah, mixed multitude. Notice what happened. <clears throat> the mixed multitude were among them. See, this is why God wants His people, although we're in the world, we're not to be of the world. Because when the world starts coming into our practices, then it has cravings. Now the mixed multitude who were among them 
yielded to intense craving. They've been months now away from their food that they had developed an appetite for in Egypt. You can develop an appetite for something. I remember, you know, when I was going through my college years, I decided to develop some appetites. So, I mean, I'd never drunk, drank as a child. My parents did. But I went to college and I began to taste some alcohol. And, ugh, the first time. But I began to work at developing, acquiring a taste for it. And you can acquire a taste for something you don't like the first time you taste it. In college, somebody handed me a cigarette and I took a draggle and it almost died. I tried the second one, it wasn't so bad, and it scared me and I put it out and I've never smoked because of that. I've been so thankful that at that moment I stopped it and I've never had a desire for a cigarette. Some of you still struggle with desires like that because you developed an appetite for something. And they had developed an appetite for the foods that were in Egypt. And now they're out and God's changing their diet and the mixed multitude who doesn't have the heritage that Israel had, they're craving with an intense craving. Now look at this, what happens here. Look, so they have included in their life people from outside the covenant that they have with God. Outside the laws that God's laying down. They've included them in their life and when they include them, they bring in their appetites and their interests and their intense craving and that becomes contagious. So that's why Proverbs is, a, is a primarily advice from a father to his son. And so much of the advice is to be careful who you associate with. Because when you associate with people, appet- uh, attitudes are contagious. So if you hang out with people around people that have a negative attitude, that will begin to get absorbed in your own heart. If you hang around with people that have positive, godly attitudes, those will begin to associate, develop attitudes. So you choose the attitudes you're going to develop by who you associate with and the atmosphere that you live in and what you eat, not physically. So the mixed multitude that were in their company yielded. You notice they had to yield to it? You don't have to yield to a craving. They yielded to intense craving as a result, so the children of Israel also wept again and said, who will give us meat to eat? So this intense craving brought to them by the people that they had included that they weren't supposed to now begins to affect the appetite and the desires of the Israelites who now begin to complain again. Verse 5. Look at this. We remember the fish which we ate freely in Egypt. It wasn't free at all. It cost them their lives. It cost them their children. It cost them slavery. It cost them backs being beaten. Which we ate freely in Egypt. The cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, the garlic... But now our whole being is dried up because there's nothing at all except this manna before our eyes. Ugh! Ugh! Which 
God provided for them, which God chose for them, which God was using to train them and prepare them so that we saw a number of weeks ago in Psalm 81, God says, oh, that they would have listened to me. Oh, that they would have listened to me. I would have fed them with the finest of honey and the finest of wheat, but they wouldn't listen to me. They wouldn't let me train them. They wouldn't let me discipline. They wouldn't let me prepare them. So I had to feed them manna. Verse 7. Now the manna was like coriander seed. Its color was like the color of dillum. The people went about and gathered it and ground it in stones, and they beat it. Look at this. They beat it into mortar with mortar and cooked it in pans and made cakes of it, and its taste like was the taste of pastry prepared with oil. That didn't sound so bad. And when the dew fell on the camp at night, the manna fell in it. And the Lord heard the people weeping throughout their families, everyone, everyone in the door of their tent, and the anger of the Lord was aroused, and Moses was also displeased. So Moses said to the Lord, I love this, Why have you afflicted me, your servant? Why don't you do this to me? And why have I not found favor in your sight that you've laid this burden of all these people on me? Did I conceive these people? Did I beget them? That you should say to me, carry them in your bosom as a guardian carries his nursing child to the land which you swore to their fathers? Where am I going to get meat to give to all these people? For they weep all over me. Give us meat that we may eat. I'm not able to bear all these people alone because the burden's too heavy for me. If you treat me like this, kill me. Now, here, aren't you glad it doesn't answer every prayer you cry out? <laughs> if you treat me like this, please kill me here and now. If I found favor in your sight, don't let me see my wretchedness. <laughs> and God then tells him to appoint some elders and to delegate this burden. Wow. What do we learn from this? Well, it was the mixed multitude that caused the problem. They began to long for the food that their appetites had developed in Egypt. And when it, as a result, when any problem arose, they complained and they wanted to go back to Egypt. They wanted to go back because their appetites were still in Egypt. Their memory of what they went through wasn't there, but their appetite was still in Egypt. Now let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and let's see how this applies to us. Verse 1. Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that all of our fathers, this is who he's talking about, who we just read, were all under the cloud. That means the cloud that he used, that God used to guide them and to lead them and to protect them. All passed through the sea. That's the Red Sea. All were baptized into Moses in the cloud. That just means joined together with him and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food. That was the word that came from God. They all drank the same spiritual drink. They drank of the spiritual rock that followed them. That rock was Christ. But with most of them, God was not well pleased, for their bodies ended up scattered in the wilderness. 
Verse 6, These things have become our example to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. Look at verse 7. And do not become idolaters as some of them, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. That was an idiom in Hebrew that meant an orgy. It's referring specifically to when Moses goes back up on the mountain to get further instructions and leaves his brother Aaron in charge. And while Moses is on the mountain, the people get uneasy because they can't see Moses anymore. They can't see their leader, who, by the way, is up there talking to God for their benefit. They can't see him, so they go to Aaron, the next in charge, and they say, we need to have a God we can see. So let us make a God for ourselves And they take all the gold that was given to them to build this beautiful tabernacle that God was going to inhabit, and instead they form a golden calf out of it in the shape of one of the gods they worshipped in Egypt. And then they say, this is now, it's interesting if you look at it, it says, this is now our God. And the word God there is Elohim. This is the God that brought us out of Egypt. Remember what God says? I am the Lord God that brought you out of Egypt. You shall have no other gods before me. So they're forming their own God that they're going to worship because they can't see Him. They have to have a God they can see because Moses isn't there for them to see. They have to have a God they can see. They haven't learned to trust the God they can't see yet. And it says, and this is the the term it used, is the people sat down to eat and drink and they rose up to play. They threw out a party. Nothing wrong with parties unless it's satisfying an appetite that's an ungodly appetite nor let us commit sexual uh, immorality as some of them did, and one day 23,000 fell. Nor let us tempt Christ as some of them tempted Him, and they were destroyed by the serpent. They complained. Verse 10, nor complain as some of them also complained and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now all these happened to them as examples, and they are written for our admonition or warning upon whom the ends of this age has come. Therefore let him who thinks he stand take heed lest he falls. For there's no temptation that's overtaken you such as common to man. But God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will find the, provide the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. You shall have no other gods before me. I went through all this because I want you to see that an idol is not just a statue that you've got in the corner of your house or on your dashboard. An idol is anything that you've developed an appetite for that you put your trust in to provide for you. That's above God. That's above God. That's above God. That's above God. Now why is this so critical to us? Let's go to Matthew chapter 6 because Jesus gives us the answer there. Verse 19. This is all about the heart, and this is how to find out where our heart is. Do not lay up for yourselves. Notice we do that ourselves. We choose. You choose your appetite. I've told you the story before. When I was growing up, my mother, not every day, but with our meals, she would serve lima beans and sometimes Brussels sprouts. And we had a rule in our house, I'd eat two of them. 
or I couldn't leave the table. And I would sit there sometimes for several hours staring at those two lima beans <laughs> because I knew if I put them in my mouth and bit into them, I'd die. <laughs> I knew my mother was trying to kill me. And she fortunately was firm in this. So I finally tasted them. And finally I realized, I'm going to have to do this anyway. I might as well see, because my first taste, I'm doing this because I have to. So I... Manna. Oh, and swallow it down. But finally I realized, look, I'm going to, I know I'm going to have to do this. So maybe I could decide to enjoy it. And so when I began to change my attitude towards the lima beans, I found out they weren't going to kill me, and I actually kind of enjoyed it. And today they're one of my favorite vegetables. And lima beans haven't changed. Their taste hasn't changed, but my appetite for them changed because I chose a different attitude towards them. Appetites are developed. Some of you come from a different a different ethnic and national background where you eat foods that if I were to eat them they may not be as appealing to me as they are to you because you were raised on them and you've developed an appetite for them that is foreign to me because I've not developed that appetite and you may have had to learn to eat some of our foods in this country that was hard for your appetite but you can develop an appetite for anything you can develop an appetite and you can change your appetite that you've had by stop feeding it. You can get rid of that appetite for sweets if you just stop feeding it and start feeding it with something else. A number of years ago my wife and I went on a diet where we decided to have nothing but, but, but fresh salads for our supper with maybe some chicken or something. But no breads. I'm not saying it's wrong. I'm just saying we decided to do that for a while. And what I found out is I began to crave fresh fruits and fresh vegetables. I began to crave them, want them. I wanted things that were good for me. And things like pies and cakes, I'd look at them and like, oh gosh, they would taste terrible. Because I denied those appetites and changed my appetite. You can change, this is why we're responsible for it. Because we can change it. I knew that would go over big. <laughs> <clears throat> but you're going to see how important it is. <laughs> do not lay up for yourselves. So we do this. Treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourself treasures in heaven. Now people often use this about money, but it doesn't say money in here yet. It includes that. But lay up for yourself treasures in heaven, verse 20, where neither moth nor rust destroy, where thieves do not break and steal. Here's why this is important, verse 21. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. What you choose to treasure, which is the appetite of your heart. Your, your tongue has an appetite, your flesh has an appetite for food, but your heart has an appetite of what it feeds on. Your mind has an appetite for what it feeds on to make it feel better, to comfort it for. Sometimes it's, it may be TV, it may be something that kind of anesthetizes you. There are things you have trained yourself to turn to for comfort, for security, for well-being. And because you trained yourself, and I'm talking to me as well as you, because you trained yourself to do that, and I've trained myself to do that, we've developed an appetite for it. 
We need to examine what those are in our life because we're talking about priorities. Because we're going to see why. For what your treasure, that's where your heart will be also. So what you treasure, that means what you value in your life. Right now, take money off the table. We're not talking about that right now. What is important to you? What is of value to you in your mind? What you like to think upon, what you like to look at, what you like to listen to, what you like to dwell on. Examine what that is because that becomes your treasure. And here's why it's important. Because where you've, what you've said is your treasure is what your heart will long for and go after. This is sometimes misquoted by saying, where your heart is, that's where your treasure is. No, no, it's the other way around. What you choose to value is so important because your heart will eventually follow it and become invested in it. This is all about the heart. God must be first in our heart. So we're taking this time to break down what is first in our heart and how does it get to be first in our heart so that we can change what's become first in our heart so that God can take that place, so that He can bless us and take care of us. Verse 22. This is going to sound very strange, and I'll, I'll explain it to you, but it's so important. It looks like he's changing subjects. Verse 22. For the lamp of the body is the eye. If therefore the eye is good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad or evil, your body will be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? Wait a minute. How can light in me be darkness? Well, light represents your ability to discern truth. It also represents life. And what he's saying here, he's using the eye as a physical example of the heart. And he's saying what the eye is to your body, your heart is to your soul. He said, for instance, if your eye, go back to verse 22. The lamp of the body is the eye. What does that mean? The only way light gets into your body so you can know whether I'm standing here with a pink shirt or a blue shirt is the light from this is going through your eyeball into your brain. It's getting, obviously, transferred into electrical impulses. But I mean, your eye is the only way you have of seeing what's really a reality around you. You can touch things, but you can't tell the color of things by touching them. You may be able to taste certain things, but you can't tell the color of something. Your eye is the only accurate way you have of getting accurate information into your physical body. So therefore, if your eye is good, what that word good means in Greek is healthy or clear. If your eye is good or clear, then your whole body will be full of light. Bring it down to, the, to this day and age, especially as you get to be around my age, the eye doctor starts checking you for cataracts. What a cataract is, is a cloudiness that forms in the front, front part of your eye so that the light that's coming in doesn't come in accurately. It gets diffused and there's kind of a cloudiness there. So you're seeing, but you're not seeing accurately. And so that's what he's talking about here. Go to verse 23. But if your eye is bad or diseased or cloudy, then your whole body will be full of darkness. And this is why you can understand now. If therefore the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? How can light be as darkness? Because if the light that's getting in you is diffused and is inaccurate, you might as well be in darkness. 
In fact, you're better off in darkness because you know you're in darkness. All right, now we got that principle. Let's go on and see what that's referring to. Verse 24. No one can serve two masters. Either will hate the one and love the other, or else will be loyal to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. How is this connected with this? He's going to talk about our hearts. Where your treasure is, that's where your heart is. And he's saying here, you can't serve. You can't. In the Greek, that is as strong as it's possible. It is impossible to serve two masters. Because if you're serving one, then you can't be serving the other because the other's not your master. You can only have one master. And he explains why. Because now he's talking about heart issues. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you'll be loyal to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Now the word mammon in Greek literally means wealth or, or, or treasures. But if you study that word out, it means something beyond that. It's referring to the world system of finances. It's, reser- it's referring to the world system of providing for yourself. And we'll get into this later on at some other point. We talked about it before. I think I mentioned it last week. Out in the world out there, in, in, the, in the world that's where Satan is the god of, because he's the god of this world right now, the economy of this world is based on buying and selling, dealing. And the essence of that is selfish, basically. I want to get the best deal from you. I want to give as little to you and get as much back from you as I can. So it's selfish motivated. It's providing for myself. So that if I'm not getting enough, that means I've got to work harder. And if I've got to work harder, then I've got to work essentially, eventually, you know, I've got to get two jobs, maybe three jobs, so I can't come to church. So I'm spending all my time out among people of the world, among mixed multitudes, with all their appetites. And eventually begin to wander away from God and don't know how. But I was trying to help my family, because God's system of providing for His people is not the world system. Because the world system, the system of mammon, is based on how hard I work and what I can do for myself and my family. God's system is based on sowing and reaping. It's based on His generosity. And the more I am generous like Him, the more He's able to be generous back into me and through me. It's a flow. So He's saying here, you can't choose God's method or the world's method because you're going to serve whichever one you choose to rely on. Okay. Now, here's where it gets down to reality. Therefore, I've taught you before, whenever you see the word therefore, it's basing what he's about to say on what he just said. Therefore, I say to you, do not worry about your life. What you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you put on it. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather in barns, but your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Which of you by worrying can add one cubit to his stature? Why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field. They grow, they neither toil nor spin. And yet I say to you that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Now, if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is thrown in the oven, 
How will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not worry, saying, What shall we eat, what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? After all these things, the Gentiles, those are people that have no covenant with God. Those are people that are outside the family of God. They have reason to do it this way, because God's not their source. For all these the Gentiles seek. Notice the word seek. For your heavenly Father knows that you need these things. And here's what it comes down to. But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. Therefore do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Look, go back to verse 33. Famous verse. Seek ye first. This whole discussion is about what is our heart seeking after? What is our heart longing for? Remember they longed, they longed, the, the, the Israelites longed for the leeks and the onions and the stew pots that they had in Egypt, which was their place of sin and bondage they'd been delivered from. And God is warning us, don't start letting your heart Seeking the world and the things of this world doesn't mean we can't enjoy them. It doesn't mean we can't have them. What's your heart seeking after? What's your heart seeking after? Because what your heart seeking after is what you're relying upon and what you're longing for is the appetite of your heart. But seek first the kingdom of God. Our seeking has to do with what our heart's looking, longing for. Seek first the kingdom of God. The things we do and don't do will come out of what we're seeking. When you have to, and I know I'm talking to the people that are here, but when you have to make yourself come to church, when you have to make yourself worship, when you have to make yourself bring your tithes, when you have to make yourself pray, your heart's not in it. I remember a couple of years ago I met with some of the teenagers because we began to bring them in on Sunday morning to be part of the service, and they asked me a question. They said, well, well, downstairs the messages run about half an hour. No, don't run down there. <laughs> and you tend to go a little longer. I, you know, and the idea was our attention span isn't long enough. I said, oh, okay. So you only watch 30-minute movies. And you only text for 30 minutes at a time. I said, do you have any trouble watching a movie that goes an hour, an hour and a half? Well, no. I said, maybe it's not your attention span. Maybe it's what your heart's into. What has the attention of our hearts? What is it? Is it God? Is it the things of God? We get up in the morning and we say, wow, I can't wait to go to church. Whoa, this church is going to be open today. Or us, you know, this is what we do. Well, it's good to do that, but our heart needs to be in it. Our heart needs to be in Him. It's not coming to church. It's worshiping Him. Who gives you every breath you breathe. And the proof of what we're seeking after is when we're worrying. And He's not, he's not telling you can't plan for things. He's not saying you can't make provision. He's saying it's what you, when you worry about something, it's your heart is treasuring that. Whatever you're worrying about, your heart's treasured. If it's your health, if you're worried, we need to be conscious of our health. When you take care of our bodies, the temple of the Holy Spirit. But when you worry about your body, your health, then that's an idol. 
when you worry about whether you're going to have enough to eat, that's an idol. Because your heart, it's captured a part of your heart. And we're getting things right. I want to end with this. Turn with me over to Hebrews chapter 11, quickly. And why this is so important. Hebrews 11, of course, is the chapter in the Bible that lists what faith is and goes through and gives examples of people of faith. We're going to pick up in verse 13. Just a couple of verses. He's talking about Abraham and Sarah and other, other people of faith. And, and these all died in faith, not having received the promises. Don't get, I'll explain that in a minute. But having seen them from afar and were assured of them. He's talking about promises of heaven. He's not talking about promises of food, promises of clothing. He's talking about the future now, where we're headed, our hope. He said, they, they all died not having seen that promise fulfilled yet, but they were assured of them and embraced them and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For those who say such things declare plainly that they are seeking a homeland. We're talking about what we're seeking, what their heart's towards. There are several scriptures where we're saying Jesus is coming back for those who are seeking His return. Look at verse 15. For truly, if they had called to mind the country from which they had come out, they would have had an opportunity to return to it. Wow. If we keep looking back to what we were brought out of, if we keep playing with what we were brought out of, if we keep desiring what we were brought out of, there may be an opportunity at some point to return. And many of you this morning here that have been here for a while, you can think of people that used to come here. You can think of people that used to sing up here and worship God. You can think of people that maybe even preach the Word. You can think of people that at one time were on fire for God and they're nowhere to be found now. You go look at them and, and they've actually worse than they were before they were saved. How did that happen? It doesn't just happen overnight. It doesn't that the devil comes in, because the devil can't steal anybody out of the kingdom of God. It happened when their appetites, the things that they thought about and talked about, started mixing with the things of the world. It doesn't mean we can't go to movies and things like that, but what are you feeding on? What is your appetite? What is it you're desiring? What is your heart going after? If it is those things, if I need to, to have, if I've got to watch TV a certain amount of time a day just to, to, to feel deal with issues, you know, then maybe my heart's relying too much on it. Maybe that's becoming an idol. They would have had opportunity to return. I want to end with a quote. Don't put it up there yet, because I, I didn't give them the whole thing. I was looking through uh, some studies about the book of Exodus this week, and, and this quote of somebody written by John of the Cross, which I'd never heard of him before, but I want to read this to you in the last part they're going to put up there. The people of Israel did not perceive or understand the sweetness that was in every taste of manna, though it was there. The people of Israel did not perceive or, or see or sense the sweetness that was in every taste of manna, though it was there. Be, and this is why. Because they would not limit their desires to the manna alone. It was there. Moses ate it but they weren't satisfied with it because they would not limit their appetite to the manna. 
the sweetness and the strength of the manna was not for them, because, not because it wasn't there, but because they longed for other meats besides. Now you can put that quote up. He who loves any other thing together with God makes light of Him because it puts into the balance with Him that which is infinitely beneath Him. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. We weren't in Egypt. We were in the world. We were in bondage to sin. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall have no other gods before me. The people of Israel did not perceive the sweetness that was in every taste of manna, though it was there because they would not limit their desires to it alone. The sweetness of the manna was not for them, not because it wasn't there, but because they longed for other meats beside it. The foundation of our lives has to be God first. And I'll tell you now, that'll cost you something. But that whatever it costs you is something that's pulling you away from Him. I read a quote once by the Wesley brothers, John and Charles Wesley. Their mother taught them what sin was. I'm not, nobody used to walk here out of bondage or anything like that. She said, sin is anything that pulls you away from God. Anything. It can be good things if it's pulling you what your heart away from Him. Now here's what we're going to do. Remember I told you, you can change your appetites. We're going to take a moment right now. We're just going to close our eyes for just a moment. And we're going to allow, just think about whatever you feel the Holy Spirit said to you today. Father, help us. Help us to hear what you're saying to us today. Not to be afraid, not to get under bondage, but to hear what you're saying to us today. And then, Father, we're asking you to show us what it is we need to do in response to that. Something we need to change in our life, some decision we need to make, maybe discuss with our wife or friends, that you may be in that place that belongs to you and you alone. And now we ask you to help us to make that decision. Help us to carry it out. We thank you for that grace. In Jesus' name.